Hello world, welcome to the Political Worldview Podcast, January 31st, 2019, the Climax in Caracas edition. I'm Adam Quinn, Senior Lecturer in International Politics at the Political Science and International Studies Department of the University of Birmingham in England. I'm joined as usual on this frosty morning by co-host Scott Lucas, a professor of international politics and editor of news and commentary site EA Worldview. How are you doing today, Scott? I'm staying warm because of your fabulous personality. Well, certainly not staying warm because of the quality of uh, the heating in this building. Uh, that is that is tr- uh, certainly true. We've got a bit of a bit of a crisis on our hands, very much not Latin American temperatures uh, being experienced on this side of the pod. We hope you're warm and toasty wherever you are, listeners. I'm also joined today uh, by a, a returning Good friend of the podcast, Marco Vieira, senior lecturer and our go-to in-house expert for Latin American politics. Uh, you may remember him most recently from our episode on Jair Bolsonaro's election in Brazil. Um, today we're going to be talking about Venezuela, a country that we've talked about before on the pod, which has been in rough economic and political shape for some time, uh, but where things look like they may finally be coming to a head um, The immediate issue is that President Nicolas Maduro declared himself the winner of a new term following an election in May of last year. The opposition, however, argues that that vote was rigged. Um, If that election is invalid, the Constitution uh, says that power should go to the head of the National Assembly. The occupant of that role, a previously not especially widely known opposition figure called Juan Guaido, uh, has indeed declared himself the rightful president unless and until a free election can be held. The contest for authority and legitimacy that this provokes extends to the streets where there have been mass protests and some violence, including fatalities, Uh, with Maduro looking to the armed forces um, and other security services for support, many fear that things could escalate rapidly unless one side or another backs down. Let's take a few moments to put these things in a slightly wider context for the listeners. And the wider context is that Venezuela has been spiraling economically since a collapse in the oil price decimated its public finances after years of expansionist spending by Maduro's predecessor, uh, the charismatic socialist strongman Hugo Chavez. Things are now dire with hard currency and short supply and chronic shortages in medicines and basic household goods. A violent crime has also risen to to epidemic levels. Chavez died of cancer in 2013, depriving the regime of its biggest political asset. Uh, He'd won election multiple times, mostly honestly, and had survived a botched coup attempt in 2002, in which many saw the hand of Venezuela's superpower neighbor to the north, the United States. Uh, That history has complicated the role, uh, we might euphemistically say at this stage, of the United States this time round. The Trump administration has very eagerly recognized Guaido uh, in his declaration to be the legitimate president and called upon Maduro to go. But the United States' hostility to the Chavista regime has been so long-standing and its ties to an unpopular pre-Chavez elite are so clear that its interventions are regarded with great skepticism. Meanwhile, final thing to note before we, uh, before we get to it, uh, Russia, which has extended Venezuela large amounts of credit and investment since its economic woes began, keen to tweak the United States' tail in its own hemisphere, uh, is looking on a little nervously and trying to menace others away from interfering. So I guess uh, if you had to pick a country to be right now, uh, Venezuela would not be it. Things do not (laughs) look great. Marco, it seems like the current crisis has its root 
in an argument about whether or whether or not the election in May was legitimate, or at least legitimate enough, uh, for the declared winner, Nicolas Maduro, to be the duly elected president. Um, what exactly is the source of the controversy about that election? Uh, thank you, Adam. Thank you, Scott. I'm very pleased to be here. Well, I think that one uh, component to this crisis, which is uh, uh, it's not new, and one which is new. Now, the component which I think is not new is a domestic one. So you have, a, I would say, not a new crisis, but uh, it's low-moving, ongoing crisis in Venezuela since, I would say, at least the last uh, 20 years. So you have, in one hand, uh, the Bolivarian uh, government, initially led by Hugo Chavez, and then after his passing, uh, Nicolas Maduro, who have been permanently and uh, uh, contested by an opposition backed up by a number of external external powers. Right, because yeah, they came into power riding a populist wave, essentially promising to deconstruct the previous corrupt political order and uh, reconstitute it along lines that were more redistributive and, and more democratic. Yeah, so the, and- the people who were on the wrong end of that deconstruction have never fully accepted that this is a legitimate political project. Yeah, and in, fair, in fairness, with, uh, uh, Chavez, which he managed to do, uh, and and it was someone who had quite a lot of, of support. If you go back to the late 80s, 1989, that was the Caracaso, which was a, a massive uh, wave of protests with a lot of people died. The military went to the streets and shot a lot of people after structural reform they were put in place. And then uh, Paris, which was the, the right liberal leading president that uh, uh, eventually uh, no, impeached. And then Hugo Chavez came to the picture in 1992 when the first uh, coup attempt. Mm. So from that point onwards, I would say that the movement towards uh, uh, left-leaning populist government became stronger and stronger. So when Hugo Chavez uh, was elected uh, 10 years, uh, 1999, 1998 to 1999, uh, the reforms he put in place led to fundamental changes in, in the Venezuela economy uh, and political social uh, uh, contest in a way that has uh, brought a lot of losses to the non-conventional elites in power and the links they had with Western powers. For, this is the, basically the, where the main rupture is. In mm-hmm. one hand, the Bolivarian Revolution, ongoing revolution, which I would say is on its last days. I don't think it can resist much longer. All the external pressures are... Uh, they are confronting at the moment, and a highly fragmented opposition who struggled big time to uh, really uh, uh, challenge fundamentally uh, the regime up to now. Right. So, so, like, so the long-term context would be that you have this populist movement that's been in government since the late 1990s, and any time that movement is on the ballot, there is some part of the country, at least, that, that, that sees this as an existential confrontation between like, legitimate politics as it should be and this dangerous, threatening uh, force that needs to go. So what, what happened in this specific election in May uh, that, that makes it the focus of such a particularly acute crisis? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say that the the, the election uh, in itself was any different than previous elections, but what happened is that the elections uh, uh, were boycotted by the opposition parties. They decided not to participate, Mm. right? Claims of fraud 
uh, rigging of the elections were also made by external observers. They, they have not been uh, confirmed anyhow. I wouldn't say that it's unlikely. It's very likely that they happened. But the main charge is that was just uh, uh, one horse running that. So they would win anyways. Right. But so, the, so, so it's a bit of a chicken and egg type situation where because they anticipate the election is going to be rigged, the opposition say they're not going to run, and then in the absence of any kind of contest, the election um, looks super yeah. rigged. And so. it's something that has been a, a common pattern for the previous elections as well. So, in, 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 And the very same claims were made in the past. So, And the result was the president always managed to stay in power regardless. Mm. What has changed, and this is what I think has changed now, is the external environment. Mm. So the domestic environment, okay, you have this guy, Juan Guado, who a few weeks ago, nobody knew who, who he was. Uh, there was a poll in Venezuela that asked him, I don't know how uh, uh, really uh, 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 trustworthy this, this poll was, but it said basically 85% of the, the Venezuela didn't even know who he was. Yeah. So and he came to power you now, self-declared president that have the, the popular backing. I'm the the, mm. the guy for freedom, liberties, and democracy, which is I don't know uh, from the perspective of someone who's looking from outside doesn't look really credible. Right, because the the issue seems to be that the Venezuelan constitution, of which there have been many, but the one that they have right now says that if you don't have a president, then that job goes to whoever is the speaker of the national assembly, uh, and he, you know, as a result of previous compromises and negotiations which no one foresaw leading to choosing who would occupy the presidency is in that job. So the reason why he's become the focus of all this is because if you want to say that the last election didn't count, he's the person the constitution wants in that in that post. Yeah, but he's still a random guy. His party has 14 representatives in assembly with 167. They have this rotation system that each party takes the role or, or, or appoints the speaker in a rotation basis. So it just happened that his party was now his the turn and was the leader of a party with 14 seats. So if you'd asked all the opposition to get together and say, okay, who should be the president instead? This is not the guy they would have come Probably up with. Probably not. And that's the thing. Uh, uh, and the point is that a constitutional, I'm not a constitutional legal expert, far from it in Venezuelan affairs, but uh, 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 as far as I understand it from colleagues who know it way better than I do, the constitution says the only situation whereby the president of the National Assembly will replace the president is if the president dies or abandons you know, his post, which didn't happen. Actually, the opposite, Maduro, I mean, more than ever. Right. He is like whatever else we might accuse him of doing, he is definitely not abandoning the job yeah. of president. Think, he's, uh, he's really digging I think there's a there. question of, a big question mark on whether or not he's a legitimate president. So, and, and which, if I may, uh, you know, brings us to the question of the external factors here. Mm -hmm. Because yeah. if you look, this is what has fundamentally changed. So what we have in Latin America now is what we didn't have in the past, which is a much stronger uh, group of countries who want uh, uh, really to get rid of him, get rid of Maduro. So Venezuela is the last bastion of uh, uh, no strong left-leaning government in the region. Yes, you have Bolivia, but Bolivia is not as representative as Venezuela is. So Cuba is still there, but Venezuela is this have been spearheading this Bolivarian revolution in, and the symbolic value of getting rid of them for countries like Colombia, Brazil, 
Chile, Peru. Yeah, because I mean, because Cuba is communist, but it's kind of like ossified into yeah, exactly. this Cold War relic. Whereas Chavez's uh, Bolivarian Revolution was this much more youthful-seeming, uh, vibrant, uh, contemporary attempt to implement mm-hmm. socialist uh, socialist policy. Absolutely. So things have changed fundamentally in Latin America. The, 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 the power balance between right-wing and left-wing governments in the region have changed in a way that can make things way more critical in mm-hmm. Venezuela. So uh, just a week or a couple of weeks after Bolsonaro took office, he organized a meeting with this guy, Juan Gado, mm-hmm. with all the members of the Venezuela opposition. With the, uh, Is uh, Bolsonaro the new president of Brazil, exactly. who uh, regular listeners may recall uh, we were debating the finer points of whether he's a fascist mm-hmm. or merely an authoritarian a few weeks ago. So he is to the robust right of center, we might say. Absolutely. And... and, and and the Lima Group. Lima Group is a group of uh, uh, states in Latin America who basically came together to help solve the Venezuela crisis. But heck, actually what they're doing is to bully Maduro as much as they possibly can. Right. Their solution <laughs> to the Venezuela crisis is that the government of Venezuela should go. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and the Lima Group met just a couple of weeks after Bolsonaro took office with the Venezuela position. And then that's everything started mm-hmm. with the backing of the United States and said, let's get rid of this guy. This is the time... No, that we can do it. And then you have the United States with a very uh, assertive foreign policy, which is not in the way as measured as previous administrations. They make claims and, and, and threats that previous administrations haven't done, which is military intervention, hmm. so, which is on the table. You know? And I think it was not on the table in previous administrations in the same way that it is at the moment. So I think, there's a, a, I think it's unlikely, but there's still there a possibility that something like that can, can happen in this particular case. On the other hand, you have China and Russia, right? Uh, uh, Russia in particular, I think, is a very important player here. So Russia has had very cozy relations with Venezuela since the very beginning of Chavez's administration. I think Putin came to power in 2000. Chavez in 1999, and since then they have established very close relations indeed. Russia has a lot to lose if Maduro goes. And this is a very interesting question, what Russia is willing to do to keep Maduro in power. How mm. far Russia wants to go to keep Maduro in power is a ve- I don't have an answer, but I think it's a very interesting question. Right, which, which creates this uh, hilarious spectacle of President Vladimir Putin making public statements about, because uh, the United States has, has recognized, uh, as we've said, the challenging government here. They've imposed a variety of sanctions. There is the specter of some kind of outside intervention. You have Vladimir Putin talking about uh, outrageous violations of the norms of international politics uh, um, and uh, the tremendous importance of large countries not bullying uh, uh, their smaller neighbors by interfering in their sovereignty and whatnot, which it's hard to know how to read that exactly. But you know, one might see it as a kind of like performative diplomatic theater, whereby like a long-standing reason for like Russian and then before that Soviet interest in Latin America was that they felt the United States was inserting itself in this interfering way around Russia's own borders uh, in a way that uh, they find obnoxious uh, and runs counter their interests. So there's a, a desire to give the United States a taste of their own medicine by, by showing them what it feels like when, when a, an actor from a totally other region plays around in what you think of as your backyard. Yes, absolutely. And I think Russia has or, or perceives uh, Venezuela as their only asset in Latin America. So it's something that they say, okay, you messed with us, with Ukraine and Georgia, and in our own backyard, 
now I'm going to mess with you in your in, in Latin America as well. So it's something we can do. And then, and then I mean, Cuba is not as uh, close ally as it used to be during Soviet times. Mm. Uh, and now, if they lose uh, Venezuela, it will make a huge difference. On the point you made, I think this uh, uh, Krasner's uh, uh, argument that uh, international relations is organized hypocrisy never made as much sense as you look at the Venezuelan case. Because on one hand, I have United States saying, look, the only reason why you're doing what you're doing is because you want to reestablish democracy in Venezuela. You're going to do it with Bolsonaro, mm-hmm. no, because he is our you know, democratic friend in the mm-hmm. region and they're going to help us. And by the way, you're going to send our Venezuela envoy, this guy, Elliot Abraham, which was like involved in all the mm-hmm. mess that happened in Central America <laughs> during the 80s. I pointed this guy in particular. I don't know if you know about this yeah, particular I, 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 I know him intimately, not but, personally, but, uh, so, but his, his career is quite spectacular. So, I mean, that, that is an interesting part of this that, you know, um, the Trump administration, maybe we'll get a little further into this in, in later dialogue, but you know, the Trump administration elected on the America First slogan um, has made a point, I would say, and it's not even incidental, they've made a point of being the most um, spectacularly uninterested U.S. government in living memory in the question of democracy and democratic norms and the promotion of democracy. So, you know, you go to Egypt and you tell the president that his counter-revolutionary coup is fine. You go to Saudi Arabia and you say that this, like, uh, 33-year-old guy who is basically capturing all power under his monarchical hands, who's having journalists murdered, you're like, this is all good so long as we keep our defense contracts. Um, You're talking a game about the importance of sovereignty and why, you know, you and and various other um, murky players in the international system can find something in common around that. But then in this one instance, um, you suddenly decide that nothing could be more important than that the sovereign uh, democratic will of the Venezuelan people should be, should be respected. And you have, um, I mean, John Bolton at, at, at the heart of this, the national security advisor, who, um, again, the... Uh, I am not someone who is universally cynical about the the intentions and ideology of U.S. policymakers. Um, so, you know, I don't think automatically when an American national security advisor says they're concerned about democracy in a Latin American state, we should, like, guffaw and wave them away. But the idea that John Bolton particularly is, like, primarily concerned or worried about or stays awake at night, troubled by the lack of respect for human rights and democracy in Venezuela is just a profoundly ridiculous statement that only someone who has followed his career Korea um, would would uh, would fully understand the the depths of the ridiculousness of, but but they, they there clearly has been a strategic decision um, that the United States can uh, assert its regional power by getting together an axis of these new right of center leaders to try and put the hammer to the last dregs of, of, of left-wing sentiment in the region. Mm-hmm. And as a result, these kind of ghoulish functionaries from the Reagan era Cold War, who like, were around uh, during a particularly grim period of American interventionism on behalf of right-wing mm-hmm. regimes to, um, uh, you know, in, in, in Honduras, in El Salvador, um, in Nicaragua. Um, Elliot Abrams uh, was, was previously deployed in the region as the United States its intermediary functionary uh, to oversee a policy of support for tyrannous right-wing regimes in competition with tyrannous left-wing regimes in a Cold War context. So the idea that he's been pulled back out of the um, uh, the, the, the tombs and archives to be redeployed to the region, um, again, suggests that there's this... Um, this not very thinly veiled subtext of Cold War amorality about basically using the language of freedom and democracy and how important it is, but basically the goal 
goal is to shove outside powers and influences out and, and, and maximize U.S. power. Absolutely. I think you're absolutely right. Uh, this is one one component, the ideological slash political one. And I think this what you just described, is, uh, I would 100% agree with you. But there's the economic component as well. We have to remember that uh, 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 Venezuela sells 500 million gal- uh, barrels of, of, of crude to the United States mm. you know, a day. So it's a lot. You know? and, 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 and some analysts are saying that uh, one key motivation in the United States is they see the encroachment of Russia in the, you know, the, the, the Venezuelan oil sector as, 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 as a threat. Mm. So Rosnet has massive investments. Uh, one of the collaterals that Venezuela gave to Rosnet was precisely Citgo's assets in the United States. If we don't repay all that to you or investments, you give you that. And I said, no, mm. wait a minute. No, this is ours to take. So I think that Russia has a lot to lose. Mm. United States has a lot also to lose, but I also see an opportunity there you know, to uh, in a new regime to have a much more uh, important uh, uh, um, and direct control of the oil industry and, and, and the money they can make with that. It's a great explanation. So much to ask. But I wanted to come back internally. We, we know that there are serious economic issues with Venezuela, longstanding, but accelerated by the, the collapse in the oil price, um, as well as the fact that those 500,000 barrels of, a day to the U.S., the question is whether that, that continues. Let me ask you, had it not, is it possible to say that setting the external pressure aside, would the economic problems have brought down the Maduro government anyway? Would there have been enough of a protest over the deteriorating economic, economic conditions? Three million people already fleeing the country, 10% of the population gone. Inflation, according to the IMF, estimated to reach 10 million percent this year, which I can't even fathom. Could the Maduro government survive that irrespective of, of the external intervention? Yeah, it it managed so far to do so, and and I think this is puzzling. Yeah. Uh, it is is what you said is 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 true. It's what's going on in Venezuela now is a is a humanitarian crisis. So people have described it as a close to what failed state should look like in many ways. So Brazil itself is feeling it. I think the inflow of, uh, of migrants from Venezuela is becoming a crisis in, in the northern state of uh, of Brazil, Roraima, and 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 and. What I think is a puzzling question is uh, how come Maduro and Chavez behind before him that also uh, I think since 2008 with the global financial crisis uh, and the drop in the price of, of oil had a massive impact on the, the Venezuelan economy. Because they hadn't left themselves a very big margin of safety. They had, they had vastly expanded government spending mm-hmm. because they, they're, they're, an, they're quite accurate analysis was that part of why Venezuela was badly run before their regime came into power was because you had a small rich elite that kept all the resources yeah. themselves most of the people get nothing and the existing party system is basically a corrupt cartel of people who all support that consensus so they came into power nationalized uh, the oil industry um, and began to redistribute the wealth of the country much more broadly a huge range of new social programs came into play. Um, the, the material conditions of the lives of most people improved markedly, but it seems like they extended that spending based on the supposition that their income would hold reasonably stable, and the collapse of the oil price meant that they made all these commitments to what the baseline of government provision for the citizenry should be, and suddenly the um, the revenue stream wasn't there, which led them to start borrowing money, and, and so the spiral began. Mm. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I 
just to answer uh, Scott's question, I, I sometimes I ask myself uh, uh, the tension here or the balance is between um, how the population who still supports the regime mm. are uh, relying on or, or, or clinging on the legacies of Chavez period, yeah. right? Because if you look back uh, uh, on the first uh, period of the first uh, administration to the second, there are real gains in Venezuela. Again, think about Lula da Silva. Lula left government with 85% approval rating. Mm. Hugo Chavez is, has this godlike status in, for, amongst Venezuelans. And so Dilma Rousseff in Brazil is like the, 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 the you know, who replaced Lula da Silva and Maduro who replaced uh, Chavez and both of them are not as Know, charismatic or even competent to run the country the way they do in the international context is different but the tension is how long it's going to last yeah. because in the end of the day you can say oh the, the election was, was was rigged but a lot of people still voted for him yeah. you know and why if the situation is so dire in the country but he still managed to get votes from the population and I think the reason is because they, they're living out of the legacies mm-hmm. from, from Chavez and but uh, I think you reach a kind of a uh, uh, tipping point now that it cannot last much longer. Yeah, I think yeah. that's true. And I guess the question is whether this tipping point has been accelerated from outside. Um, do you see the catalyst as being Bolsonaro's election in Brazil, that you needed that figure to try to wrap, to bring together other Latin American countries to say this is the moment? Or was it the Americans who made the first push? Can we figure that out at this point? I think a, a bit of both. Okay. And that's why I said that that's what has actually changed. The election of Bolsonaro was very important yeah. because I think it managed to mobilize you know, right-leaning regimes and said this is the moment that we can really push hard on Venezuela. Mm-hmm. And the same thing with, uh, with the U.S. administration, what Adam said, that we can use Bolsonaro, we can use this new uh, political situation at America to uh, change, fundamentally change Latin America and the way you want to change it would have more right, right-leaning, you've made populist or, or, or Trump-like uh, administrations in the region. Yeah. But here's a, what puzzles me, I, guess, I can understand, obviously Brazil, hard right government, I can see that other center-right governments being part of the Lima group. I never thought of Ecuador as being part of the right, though, and they've come out against Maduro. I've thought of them more as a center-left government. So it seems like it's pulling in several countries that you wouldn't associate as being anti-Venezuelan or anti-Maduro to start off with. Yeah, but Ecuador is moved out from the Bolivarian uh, axis, so it's not the same coalition that is running the country anymore. So it's moved more towards the center of of its politics. Yeah, absolutely. So the era of Bolivarianism in Ecuador is over. Right. Okay. Uh, it's mm-hmm. not. I, I would say that would explain why they have joined it. I think in in South America is only now uh, uh, Bolivia left, right. which is like uh, like not far left, or which is still fairly, if not fully, committed to Bol- Bolivarianism. Mm-hmm. The way. What about that, Nicaragua? Is Ortega still holding on over there? Yeah, so Nicaragua, speaking of Cold War ghouls, um, he's, uh, he, he's, he came back a while ago, yes. Yeah, no, Nicaragua as well, but they, he's in, in big trouble there yeah. uh, <laughs> at the moment. But, uh, I think in terms of stable or, or fairly stable, uh, I would say the Bolivia is, is, is stable, but it's not as unstable as those other states that have to now deal with fundamental pressures to, for change. In Nicaragua and, and, and Venezuela. Yeah, I think the two prominent Latin American countries I noticed were Bolivia and the new government in Mexico. 
Uh, yeah, Mexico, yeah, absolutely. But Mexico is uh, is different, different. Uh, I would say breed of left, uh, 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 left government. Uh, 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 this thing about using the ideology of uh, Bolivar as a centerpiece of how they see themselves as so this socialism of the 21st century. Yeah. How Chavez described it. Huh? Uh, I think this is pretty much gone in the region. Yeah. Uh, but you're right. Mexico is the only one who refused. To, uh, 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 to go along with the Lima Group uh, uh, statement on, on Guaido as the legitimate uh, uh, president of, of Venezuela. And I guess going even wider, if I get out on the Russia dimension, wasn't it? Um, it is said, and I'm not 100% confirmed on this, but it's said that Russia has such a stake that they sent in uh, effectively mercenaries, their paramilitary groups, the Wagner Group, who've been involved in Ukraine, who've been involved in Syria, and that they sent a couple of detachments of them to protect Maduro. Uh, now, whether or not that is absolutely what happened, the Russians certainly haven't denied that. And it's also very, very interesting that with this new form of information warfare that they pursue, they have gone all in in terms of backing Maduro. So whether you're talking about RT, whether you're talking about Sputnik, to the extent that in the last couple of weeks, all those people that I get to watch on my social media feed who are heavily pro-Assad, Mm-hmm. where Russia's intervened, have suddenly switched from their attention from Syria to Venezuela. So I think it's absolutely right to ask how far in Russia will go um, and whether Russia has the economic strength if this goes into a protracted fight for Venezuela. Yeah, strategically and logistically, Russia is in a big, has a big disadvantage there yeah. you know, vis-a-vis the United States. But this is the question for me, you know, whether Russia will really back up Maduro in a way that they are willing to go all the way to avoid regime collapse in Venezuela. Yeah. Uh, economically speaking, in terms of investments they have done, and politically as well, uh, I read some, some pieces now from, from uh, Moscow Times, for instance, that they say that Putin is willing to do that because he thinks that he has a lot to lose yeah. if Venezuela goes. Uh, politically is the last mm-hmm. asset or the only asset they have. Mm-hmm. And economically, the investments that uh, 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 they have made in the oil industry in the country will justify uh, a more intense pressure to keep Maduro in power. One other big money question. Um, Marco, does this all come down to the Venezuelan military? Whether the Venezuelan military breaks from Maduro? Or am I overemphasizing the military's role in determining the outcome of this? Right, because if I, if I could just add on that, it seems like the, the control of this movement over the country um, has moved from at the very beginning, it relied on extremely widespread and quite strong support from the general population based on commitment to the revolutionary ideology and the material benefits that were being delivered by the policy. As the economic rationale um, has kind of dissipated and circumstances have gotten tougher, and as the charisma of, of Chavez, the original revolutionary leader, has been subtracted from the situation, um, the kind of the hard operational realities of how you hold power through through force have started to come into sharper relief. That 
about uh, two or three years ago, it seemed that the that Maduro was relying on the armed forces to do a lot of, uh, and the National Guard to do a lot of, um, you know, rounding up enemies, locking people up, beating up opponents, that kind of thing. Now, uh, I'm reading in the New York Times this morning, it seems that the armed forces, even the National Guard are not showing up anymore because their wages have been evaporated by inflation. The armed forces seem to be holding their cards very close to their chest um, uh, and are not willing to do that kind of duty anymore but aren't at the same time are not challenging his legitimacy and some kind of new police unit that sounds like it's quite heavily infiltrated by by right-wing vigilantes is doing fulfilling the function of going around and kicking in doors and uh, and eliminating opponents so it seems like by the time you're relying on you know ad hoc police squads and right-wing vigilantes uh, while the army kind of looks on and makes its choices your grip is really quite precarious it would seem that that, that, that this regime is really relying on um, some very fine calculations about physical force and the control of the streets at this point yeah, I uh, I was leaving the military for last in my comments, but a fundamental a fundamental important, I think is the last card holding up the whole mm-hmm. house of cards together in Venezuela. I think if it goes either way, it depends on how the military moves, uh, if they will uh, uh, stay loyal to the to Maduro or if they will uh, 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 defect basically to the side of Guaido. Guaido has already uh, signaled that he would not really prosecute or charge the military uh, uh, high brass if they decide to defect. Uh, the thing with the military in Venezuela is interesting because uh, Maduro and Chavez be- uh, before him have uh, made or used a quite uh, uh, a wise uh, strategy to keep the top generals in, in key positions in the government to move them around the country, to avoid them creating cells of opposition by organizing locally. They are always aware of the, the need they have to keep military with them throughout. Because, yeah. I mean, Hugo Chavez had himself attempted to lead a failed military coup and then once in office survived a failed coup. Yeah. So he, uh, he had some awareness. Of, yeah. uh, of, in many of ways, he issues. saved the reputation of the military because what happened before, the military in Venezuela up to 1989 was very similar to Brazil, was a country who had just fought the independence wars, was never involved in conflict, interstate conflict. The military was seen as a way for... Uh, uh, mo- social mobility that people could join the military and they have very prestigious institution in the country up to 1989 when they were sent to the streets to kill people, yeah. you know, to, to, to curb protests. And then the reputation turned upside down. And Chavez rescued the reputation of the military because he had, the problem was not with us, the soldiers, the, the, or the, 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 the mid-range officials like the top generals that corrupted them, so on and so forth. And they brought back the military as we had a revolution in the country through him. So in that sense, the military became a, a part and parcel of the Bolivarian revolution in a way that uh, uh, without the, the, the backing of the military, mm-hmm. the, the regime is, is, is impossible regime to, to sustain itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I mean, uh, I don't know exactly what's going on on the ground. I think what you just told me is, is news to me. I, 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 I talked to some colleagues and, and they said that as long as Maduro is able to keep the structure still hanging together, uh, it, it might pull through 
with the military, but I don't know uh, uh, how able he will be. Uh, he will be to do that. Another thing is that this point about what's going to happen to them afterwards. You have to also consider that, given the situation, the, the the chaotic situation in the country, the military has been also involved in a number of illegal activities. So the uh, they are. Uh, um, you know, uh, clear evidence that the Air Force, for instance, engaged in drug trafficking uh, across border with Colombia. The drugs that go through Venezuela are have been uh, uh, through the, the 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 guidance of of of, of the military. There are things that will so be the, quite yeah. dodgy for them mm. afterwards. There are people who need a blind eye, and that mm. might provide a basis for negotiation um, about transition power. Absolutely, you need to be clear to them that look, you know that things are a bit dodgy here. If Things change. You need to uh, to be protected in a way that uh, otherwise you stay. You just stay with with Maduri. Go down with him if that's the mm. case. So I mean, suppose I was coming at this from the perspective of um, a rather idealistic political morality here. Um, it seems pretty clear uh, that President Maduro's government is not a paragon of democratic practice or human rights uh, upholding. They're, they're um, basically prepared to use physical force against their own people uh, in order to uphold what is increasingly looking like a, a one-party state backed by, backed by the military. On the other hand, um, the regime before the Bolivarian revolution in Venezuela met the description that, that, that Hugo Chavez gave it of a corrupt elite cartel in which extremely rich vested interests held on to their wealth at the expense of the majority. And John Bolton and Donald Trump, um, you know, no one needs to convince me uh, that these are the kind of actors who would, would, would quite happily insert themselves into a situation like this to support, um, you know, People who are not the good guys, uh, you know that. So, so if this government falls, and if it is replaced by the opposition, those currently calling for it to go because it's not legitimate, because you need democracy, because you need human rights, are we going to see something that could plausibly be described as a liberal democratic political process uh, uh, take place um, in Venezuela? Or is this about uh, sweeping into power many of those same vested interests from the pre-Chavez era uh, and a load of cant about democracy, but basically a right-wing reactionary state? Like, who are there good guys to root for in this, or do we basically have a choice between this, this like this nasty dictatorship using left-wing rhetoric, or a reactionary regime uh, uh, using using democratic rhetoric uh, that, that's basically covering for plutocrats? If I can add a specific to that, because we don't know much about Guaido, right? But Leopoldo Lopez, who of course was the mayor of Caracas, still detained, if I understand, effectively as a political prisoner. For several years. Some people look to Lopez and say, this could be the person who could come out as a unifying figure amongst the opposition. Is that possible? Uh, I don't know. I think that if you look at uh, what people who are still supporting Maduro or still a bit skeptical towards the opposition in Venezuela, he said, what is most likely to happen is a return to the ancient regime before Chavez. That's what is the most likely scenario, structural reforms, uh, 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 um, uh, austerity, alignment with uh, with the United States, 
uh, indictment of the social gains that happened during Hugo Chavez. And this is the narrative of the government itself. Uh, Anti-U.S. sentiment in Venezuela is still very high. I think the whole of Latin America, if, if, you, if you think about that, right? So there's a swing between uh, very strong attachment and admiration for the United States in one hand, but also the opposite, you know, very strong anti-U.S. sentiment. And I think in Venezuela is, a, is, a, is, is still the case. And uh, the government is banging on this. They said, if, you, if this guy becomes the president, he's just going back to everything we fought to get rid of. You know? uh, I don't know. I think that's, uh, 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 that's you no know, Donald Trump... Uh, appointing uh, Elliot Abraham as, as his employee doesn't help at all. I think just fits on this narrative quite nicely from the perspective of uh, of a right, like if, you, if you if you wanted yeah. to make the argument that the people that you're dealing with domestically uh, are tools of right wing American forces who want to devastate your country for the in, in service of um, some very narrow uh, conception of the national interest that benefits them and benefits the USA, like having this guy who was basically um, you know writing point for death squads uh, effectively in Honduras etc in the Cold War. Uh, Show up and say, "Hey, I'm Elliot Abrams, and I'm here to help." Uh, you could not do better to to, to signal to, to people that they're right to to go to their corners. Yeah, that's the thing. Uh, yes, I think that uh, what uh, uh, Maduro is pushing in terms of trying to keep people behind him is precisely that. Look, look what uh, these people say in the United States. They talk about democracy, but in fact, what they want is to get hold of our uh, assets. They want to put in place a puppet government. Uh, Guado has no internal support. He was a no one before uh, this whole you know, uh, attempt towards uh, uh, the regime. And as I said before, you know, what I think Donald Trump's administration is doing is not helping in trying to show that, in fact, what they're doing is to reestablish democracy and try to uh, 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 take Venezuela out of this dire situation they find themselves in at the moment. I think we've set the world to rights. Thank you very much for listening. You can follow the Political Worldview podcast on Twitter at Paul Worldview, and please do. Uh, please also subscribe to us on SoundCloud or iTunes or Spotify now um, and leave us a rating or a comment. That helps other people discover the pod. Uh, we'd really appreciate it if you made a recommendation of us on social media, share us, draw people's attention to us. That's how we get new listeners. Uh, come on our show page on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Paul Worldview for links to the show and occasionally other things too. Uh, Scott had to dart out of the room to another media engagement just before he had the chance to say goodbye. Uh, so I will say goodbye on his behalf and tell you to look him up on Twitter at, I think, Scott Lucas underscore EA. I think I've been listening to him tell me his, uh, his Twitter handle for so many years, but uh, I'm not sure that I've fully remembered it. But I think that's it. Um, Marco, where can people find you on social media if they want more of your um, quality? I'm, I'm fairly active on Twitter. Uh, M underscore A underscore Vieira. You can find me there. And uh, Facebook as well, uh, Marco Vieira, who can easily uh, search my name and find me on Facebook. Excellent. All the underscores there. Uh, I, I'm Adam Quinn. Uh, I, am, I am on Twitter at Adam James Quinn, but I use that very rarely. A uh, better place to find me is on Facebook, uh, where I'm Adam Quinn 161, if you want to look at the URL. Uh, but I'm the guy standing in front of the U.S. Capitol building with sunglasses on, uh, so, uh, which is uh, you know, perhaps a little appropriate, given that we're talking about Latin American interventions. Uh, 
Um, so uh, follow me there, and you can get a much more comprehensive rundown of my output over each day's news. Um, our producer is Connor McKenna, and you've been listening to us from the Political Science International Studies Department at the University of Birmingham in England. Thanks to the Pulse's Good Ideas Fund, as always, for their support. We are uh, very grateful indeed. We'll be back soon. We hope you will be too. Bye. Bye bye.